Who are you? Um, that's the question that I opened with last week. I, I asked you, who do you think you are? Or who do you think you should think that you are? Who are you? <clears throat> Maybe more specifically, what are you? That was uh, an effort to launch us into this series on identity, which I said, look, this is a, a complicated topic. But it's an important one. Our understanding of who we are shapes how we think about so many things. Not just about how we think about ourselves, but it shapes how we define success. It shapes how we treat other people. I went on to note that it's complicated because I actually have many sort of competing or complementary identities. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a father-in-law. I am a uh, I am a son, I'm a brother, I'm a pastor, I'm a 60-year-old male, I'm a sinner, I am a, a child of God, I'm a reader, I'm, I'm all kinds of things, as are you. And so how do we rightly order all of these identities? I went on from there to note <clears throat> that our society is pretty confused right now. Uh, used to be that identity was something that was given to people by the community, by the family. Uh, now people feel like they are defining themselves. Uh, so that's sort of shaken everything up. And then I, I noted that there are at least four worldviews, four different ideas about how we should understand ourselves: the naturalist, the mystic, the idealist, and then the Christian worldview, which led us to Genesis chapter 1, where I read part of that, jumping ahead to verse 26, and said, look, we are creatures made in the image of of God. Now, just so you know, this again, this is such a big, complicated uh, topic. I am, um, I am just water skiing over so much. I was at a lecture this week about humanity, who we are. It was a, at the Carl Henry Center at Trinity, and uh, th there's so many different wrinkles that have been, been emerging in the last 20 years in terms of identity, how society is defining it. I think it's worth noting culturally that uh, many people today uh, sort of unthinkably are, are being identified or if that's too strong of a word many of us are being shaped by consumer brands or by sports teams. Uh, in Phil Knight's book Shoe Dog he's the founder of Nike and he, he talks about recognizing at some point that he really wasn't in the shoe business at all. He wasn't making shoes. He was in the business of trying to help people form emotional bonds with his logo. I thought, wow, what, what a statement that is. And then uh, I think it's worth noting that many people at this moment are identified, not so much by what they're for, but by what they are against. I think it's also worth noting that a whole lot of the ideas about identity that are out there today I think are, are pretty uh, destructive and harmful. And, uh, and then, of course, there's all kinds of places in Scripture that we could look for references to identity. I mean, once you start to, to clue in to this idea that, that God is shaping us and God is trying to help us understand who we are and to rightly see ourselves, you, you realize that uh, Calvin was really on to something when he said, you know, the, the two things that we need to do in order to, to grow as Christ's disciples or to better know God and to better know ourself. 
So when I was at this lecture uh, this week, I'm, I'm sitting there and I had, uh, I was taking notes, but I also had this sermon out because I wasn't completely done with it. And uh, the speaker, uh, Russell Moore, uh, starts by referencing uh, uh, Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, which were the two passages that I had written down on the very first page of, of my notes for this. And so uh, Psalm 8 is the David asking sort of the rhetorical question, what is man, uh, God, that thou art mindful of him? Uh, and in Hebrews 2, sort of the same kind of thing, what, is, uh, what are mere mortals uh, that, that you should think about them? Both passages and others, you know, again, dozens if not hundreds, they raise the question, who are we, how are we supposed to think about ourselves? I thought, briefly, you know, six months ago, I thought, well, I, maybe if we do a series on renewal, but we've got to start with identity, I, I should just look at all the different ways that the Bible uh, sort of identifies us. And so I made a list. <laughs> and uh, so the Bible refers to us as sheep. Trees, clay pots, exiles, children, members of the covenant, sinners, royal priests, saints, prodigals, ambassadors, and about two dozen other things. So I decided, yeah, that would be way too long of a series. So, um, look, we could, we could unpack this in a lot of different ways. There's lots of different implications of the things that we see in culture and lots of different uh, teachings that we get from the Bible. Um, so what I want us to do is, is to, to drill down on the, the four big ideas that I think uh, shape us or define us as I understand God defining us. So last week, again, we were, um, uh, we were in Genesis 1, uh, jumped to verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so I uh, read this passage and I said, look, there's two things I want you to hear Today, this was last week, I said, first of all, we are creatures. So uh, we've got to underline this. We are not our own. We were created. We are dependent. We are limited. We're not the top of the food chain. Uh, we, we are owned by God, which is a, a very, I said, like, this is a very countercultural opening proposition because we like to think of ourselves as self-made. But the fact of the matter is, we're not self-made. Uh, not in the literal sense. We are wholly dependent upon God and upon others. So the first thing last week, as I said, look, we are creatures. We're limited. The second thing was then, we, were, we are made in the image of God. And so uh, the, first, um, the first five creative days recorded, uh, at the end of those days, God saw that it was good get to the end of the sixth day, God saw that it was very good. We, hum humanity, is the top of God's creative activity. And so you are not simply a collection of biochemical reactions. You are not a, a stimulus response machine. You're not the temporary pinnacle of the evolutionary process. Not a naked ape. None of those things are true. 
We are people. Who, we are creatures who have been made in God's image. And that gives us uh, an inherent dignity and worth and value. And so um, we came out of all of that and I said, look, I, I want, if, if, if you only get one idea that, that we're carrying forward from today, and again, this was last Sunday, I want it to be that you are highly valued. So today, we get the second of the four points that should shape us, and that is that we are deeply fallen. So, highly valued, made in the image of God, deeply fallen. So, we're going to Genesis chapter 3. So, Genesis chapter 1 is, you know, creative activity. We were in verse 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 2 is sort of uh, the creation story told from a different angle. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is where we get the fall. We get the introduction of evil. We get uh, all the massive implications of sin. And it's a, it's a complicated uh, passage, raises lots of questions, but uh, I think the big points jump out at us. And so uh, it opens, as you likely know, the, the, the serpent uh, deceiving the woman who in turn uh, sort of leads her husband down this path. He comes across as being uh, sort of dim-witted and uh, willfully um, uh, disobedient. So the, the implication, the suggestion is that uh, the woman was deceived. She was, she was a little bit more innocent in this uh, than, the, than uh, Adam is. Then um, they, when they realize that they are sinful, when they realize that they have, they have disobeyed, they run and hide, and then God comes walking through the garden, and he calls out to them, and, uh, and, and then we have Adam immediately throwing everybody under the bus, you know, the woman you gave me, she's the one that did this, and so he's blaming God, he's blaming his wife, and, and so that, that, that's the account that we get in Genesis chapter 3. It's followed by um, the, the fall and the curse and the implications of what's going on. So this is now Genesis 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. So we get sort of the first uh, prophecies going on here. The first, we call this the Proto-Evangelion, sort of the first telling of the gospel that God is going to send uh, the offspring of woman. Um, uh, and this, by the way, uh, I'm sort of committed to using the NIV because I started the NASB and I made the transition to the NIV and uh, one of the previous pastors at uh, Christ Church was on the NIV translation team. So uh, Christ Church was using the NIV. I mean, there's uh, obviously lots of people now use the ESV. I, when I don't like a translation, <laughs> I get a little frustrated. The, the word here uh, is, is, is the, between your offspring and hers, uh, and the, the seed of woman and is up here, and so there's an implication because seed is not obviously what gets linked to a woman. Woman has an egg, man has the seed or the sperm. So the implication is that uh, 
Uh, it is the virgin conception that is following here. We see that, and then we see he will crush your head. Jesus is going to defeat evil. Evil will strike his heel. So we have all of that going on here. Then to the woman, he said, I will make your pain uh, in childbirth uh, very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife, and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And uh, so we sort of have this idea that the world is broken, we are broken, we are sinful, everything is coming undone. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Um, so... <laughs> Many of you can relate to this. You come back from work and you go, yes, uh, this, this garden that I'm trying to cultivate is full of thorns and thistles. Life is so much harder than I thought it needed to be. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. So what we have here um, is uh, a tragedy. It's the fall. So in classical literature, uh, you might know that when the protagonist uh, gets better, uh, that's called a comedy, classically speaking. Not, not a you know, Seinfeld comedy, not a rom-com, uh, but if the protagonist ends on a higher note, that's called a comedy. When the protagonist sort of ends on a lower note, it's called a tragedy. And so what we have here is much more of a tragedy in uh, Genesis 3 um, and in the, the first part of this account. So Americans, by the way, we might watch movies that are tragedies or Shakespeare plays that are tragedies, but we really like uh, to watch and to read and to think about uh, the classic comedy. We always like the, the underdog who rises to the top. And so the big stories... And the big movies that people watch, Star Wars with Luke Skywalker, uh, or um, the Lord of the Rings with Frodo Baggins, uh, the Spider-Man series with Peter Parker. Uh, you, you got other characters like Harry Potter and uh, Katniss Everdeen and all of these people who are sort of normal, but they are going to rise up and they're going to be doing great things. That's what we like. Um, now, some of these characters are complicated and they're conflicted and they've got some scars and they don't always do the right thing but but by and large they do they're more good than bad and so they sort of climb so have to understand that's not the biblical account so we are highly valued but we are deeply and profoundly broken so it's not that we are um, we're good people who have got some surface wounds. It's not that we're mostly good, but we've got a, a, couple, uh, a, a couple sort of uh, miscues, a couple corrupted files in our software. That's not the suggestion. When we look at Scripture, we find that we are profoundly broken, fallen, corrupted. Uh, as uh, Tim Keller has said, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Now, you will go on and say, you know, the gospel is this, that we are more broken than we can possibly admit to ourselves. 
but, but we are also more loved than we can possibly imagine. So there is this side of it, but, but today it's this side in that we are more broken than we are generally willing to admit to ourselves. Frederick Buechner, um, retired uh, writer and, and pastor, he said, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror, all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, and slob. Again, he will go on and say, that is the tragedy, but it's also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but bled for um, as well. That is the comedy. So the Christian message is a mix of, of the bad and the good. Uh, it's good, then it's bad, then it's good again. But uh, I want us to focus today, I want you to understand as one of the four big takeaways that we are highly valued, but we are deeply fallen. So there's a lot of ways to make this point. Uh, if we just sort of are doing a flyover of, uh, of the Bible, it's not just that, you know, on page two or three of your Bible, we have evil and corruption and all of this happening. It, it goes from there. So as I mentioned last week, uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is the universal story. Genesis 3 is where the fall happens. And Genesis 4 through 11 is just basically... Uh, to, to drive home the point that, um, that, the, the, that the sin, that the corruption, that the bad is really profoundly bad. And so one of the first things that you see is Cain killing Abel, a brother killing another brother. It's that bad. Um, but it's not just in Genesis 4 through 11. Then we get to uh, Abraham. And we find in Abraham, as we will find in many other biblical characters, many, many of the heroes, Abraham and Moses and David and, and you know, Peter and all, all the, the quote-unquote good guys, we'll find that the good guys are not, in, not exclusively good. So Abraham will lie. And among the, among the things that he will lie about is that his wife, he will, he will claim that she's his sister because he doesn't want to get into it with this guy who's going to take his wife and uh, go sleep with her. And so he's worried that if he, if he lets this person know that, that Sarah is his wife, that in fact um, he will be put to death. And so he lies to cover his tracks. Moses is uh, obviously a star of the Old Testament, but Moses is a hothead. And so he will fly into a rage and he'll kill a man. Uh, and then later on he'll, he'll sort of blow his temper and so he doesn't get to enter into the promised land. Um, David is, you know, early on, David is great. David is, David is, you know, he kills the lion that tries to attack the sheep. And then he goes and he kills Goliath. He's a person of great faith. He loves God. He writes music. He's got a heart committed to God. But then uh, we got the whole Bathsheba account, and then he, and then he has Uriah killed, and, and you know, his, it will unfold. Now, he's forgiven like, I, I couldn't talk about David if I couldn't talk about forgiveness uh, because, because we're all broken. But, but David's life will make it clear that uh, even, quote unquote, the best of us are desperately broken. And I could go on with others. 
uh, the, 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 the theological point that I am developing here is what theologians refer to as total depravity. Not utter depravity. The suggestion is not that we're as bad as we could be because, again, I, I always say this, no matter how bad you are, no matter how unruly your kids are, you can imagine a scenario in which they're worse. Uh, total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be. It means we're as bad off as we can be. It means that the poison that has come into our system has gone throughout the system. And so the, the glass is not 100% poison. Uh, it's a glass of water, but poison has been stirred into the entire glass. So every part of us, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, every part of us has been corrupted. And we see this message in, in accounts of people. We see this message in chapter and verse. Jeremiah 17 uh, that talks about our heart being more deceitful than uh, anything else that is out there. Psalm 14:7. all have turned away. Uh, all have become corrupt. There is no one who is good. We jump into the New Testament. We got this with Romans. Chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all broken. We all fall short of the standard uh, of God. Romans 6 talks about the wages of this is, is our eternal death. Romans 7 talks about, you know, we got Paul's account of him trying to do good, and he's just, he's frustrated. The very things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who am I? You know, woe is me. I am that profoundly broken. So we see this going on and on. Um, I was mentioning this to somebody, um, one of the, the Bible studies that I lead, this is for mostly for people who sort of uh, a little um, on the outside, skeptical, trying to figure out is Jesus really who he claims to be. And uh, pointed out, we were, we were looking at something and I was reminded of the, the famous G.K. Chesterton quote. He's the British uh, writer. And uh, at one point, he's a very famous writer, public intellectual, you know, writing all kinds of things. And at one point, the London Times was uh, writing to the most prominent people in the world, the big intellectuals, and asking, what's wrong with the world? And all these people are writing these long Sunday essays about you know, what's wrong with the world. And uh, when they sent it to G.K. Chesterton, he writes back and he says, um, let me get it here exactly, uh, what's wrong with the world? He wrote, dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. So he was aware of what was going on in his own broken heart. So we can look at the Bible and see over and over that we are broken and that what the Bible is teaching is that we are sinful, broken, dead in our sins people. We could also look at history. So uh, some of you know I've been doing this history podcast since COVID kicked in. And uh, so I've done, I think, 50 lectures so far and uh, trying to look at the 100 most significant people, events, and ideas of the last 2,000 years and trying to develop uh, how we got to where we're at, how the church got to where it's at, why we think the way we do all of that. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I was, I was doing um, a flyover of the 18th century, and uh, 
I often will do that. Like these are the big things that are happening in the next hundred years, and then we're going to do a deeper dive into each one of them, the Enlightenment and uh, the revolutions and so what have you. But um, so when I'm doing some research for this, I've got this big, massive book. I bought it 20 years ago. You'd never buy this book today because all this stuff is just online, but, but it's like a 900-page book, and every page there's just a chart. And you go every year. So it just, you know, it starts, goes, I think it dates back to, you know, the birth of Christ. And even before that, you've got some entries. But then every year it just says what happened. And it's got these categories. And the categories include uh, inventions. It includes political activity. It includes scientific discoveries. It includes art, literature, the music that was popular. you just got this chart. And so you, you see when uh, Machiavelli wrote The Prince. And you see when you know, somebody invented the cotton gin, or you see when all these things are happening, and so you just have got this line. Well, so I'm always looking at this and reading through this, and one of the things that just by the time you get to the 1700s just becomes obvious is every year there's all this list of wars. Every year it's this war, it's that war, it's this rebellion, it's that, you know, it's that skirmish, and it's just all this blood. So I, I went looking and I found, I don't know that I believe it, but someone, uh, I found a historian who said that uh, of the last 3,500 years, there have been wars going on for 3,128 of them. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure that I believe that. Uh, I actually think it would be more than that. Uh, but there's the point. If we're going to study history, what we're going to see is that we're pretty profoundly broken. I mean, we're always killing each other. So this past week I was working on comparing the French and American revolutions. And so the American Revolution, uh, a fairly conservative uh, play, uh, there was, there was a, this, this statement that, you know, the rights of English citizens were being denied and they didn't, they didn't want to throw everything out. They just wanted to sort of stay within the system, but there's taxation without representation. And so, and so there's a revolution, and then they build a system of government that is based on an understanding. So the American system of government, based on the understanding that uh, you have to have a system of checks and balances because people are broken, and people with power will misuse it. Uh, that's just the way it goes. And so th that sort of undergirds what, what is established. And when you read the founding fathers, you see over and over, they wanted a separation of church and state, very different reasons than we think, but, but they, they all are sort of saying, even the deists are sort of saying, there needs to be public virtue in order for this government to work. People have to be virtuous. And the way we get virtue is through religion. Now, they don't want a state church, and, you know, we've got all that. But, but that's the American side of the equation. The French side of the equation says sort of the opposite. So they say, we are, we are good. Uh, and what we want is, you know, we want, we want friendship and equality and, and, you know, fraternity, brotherhood and all these things, freedom and liberty. And, so, and they're following Rousseau. And Rousseau is this Enlightenment philosopher who says people are good. They're inherently good. The opposite of what, of what you know, the, the United States is not a quote-unquote Christian country, but there's clearly a Christian worldview that is shaping the Christians that are, that are right there at the beginning trying to shape and form the United States. The French at this time, 
they say we're, we're, going, we're going with the idea that we're all good. And Rousseau says this. And Rousseau says we're good. And Rousseau, I mean, Rousseau is a lout. Rousseau is a guy who's sleeping around, and every time a, a, a woman gets pregnant, he forces her to give up his child and put it in the poorhouse. He wants no responsibilities. And all his friends say, brilliant guy, absolutely wicked. He's a bad person. And Rousseau is the one that's sort of fueling uh, the French Revolution and this idea that, that everybody's good. And so what happens? You know, they have a revolution and they, they cut off the head of the king and then pretty soon they're cutting off the head. They invent the guillotine and they're beheading everybody. It's just, it runs amok. And they say we're good and then they're killing everybody. So I, I just would step back and say, look, this idea that we're good, it just stays in the system. It comes out of the Renaissance, it comes out of the Enlightenment, it, comes, it goes into modernism, and we just keep having these people say, you know, with just a little bit more time and a little bit more education, we're going to fix all our problems, and heaven is going to come to earth, and we're all going to hold hands and sing Imagine by John Lennon, because it's going to be a perfect world. And, and when these things get unleashed, these utopian ideals get unleashed, lots and lots of people die, because we're not inherently good. And when we think we're inherently good, things go really bad. But, it's, but part of the challenge is we think we're better than we are. Now, I, I could quote all kinds of social studies that would, that would suggest this. 93% of people think they're a better than average driver. 93% of people, including people who are in remedial driving classes, <laughs> They think they're better than all the other drivers. If somebody drives slower than you, you probably think they're an idiot. If somebody drives faster than you, you think that they're reckless. And, uh, and that's, that's just the way they are. By the way, the people who think, the 93% who think they're better than the average driver, they also think that they're modest. So they really think they're better than they think they're better than. I mean, it is shocking. By the way, people in prison, when you survey people in prison, they think they're more moral than other people. I could go on. Um, I don't think I have to. If, you're, if, if I have not been persuaded, and I got a, about uh, two months ago, three months ago, somebody wrote to me and said, you know, Woodruff, you're so negative. You're always so down on us. You're always saying that we're so, we're so broken and we're so sinful. Read this book. And the book was called Original Blessing. And so I got the book and I read it and I, I read the first half of it, I it just I just didn't find anything there with any substance to it. It was it was a desire to be better, and and yes, we can treat each other's well, uh, each other well, and yes, we can help other people, and we do good things. Yes, absolutely. But um, if if you're not persuaded, I would encourage you. The the easiest quick read book is another book by uh, Brand Hansen. I recommended him a few months ago, his book, The Truth About Ourselves, explores in a light, breezy way uh, this idea of our brokenness. The, the second thing that I want you to do, you could read that book, the second thing I want to do and recommend is that you think about the cross. Because I think that in the cross of Christ, we have a great visual image to remind us how we should think about ourselves. On the one hand, the cross is there to, to suggest that we had enough value 
Like that God is, is love, loves us enough that he shows up. He comes down out of heaven. He goes to his death on the cross. I mean, so point number one of the four, we are highly valued. The cross suggests the value that we have not earned, but the dignity and the, and the inherent value that God has, has given to us. But secondly, the cross also suggests how profoundly broken we are. God has to die in order for our sin to be uh, atoned for. So I think the cross is a great uh, representation for you. And um, in light of that, I want to encourage you to be meditating on the cross. And uh, I thirdly want to encourage you to repent. And so I am going to let uh, the campus pastors come and to lead us in times of repentance. Heavenly Father, guide us to that end. Help us to see ourselves more as we should see ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.